Let us pray. God, our Creator, when you speak, there is light and life. Fill us with your Holy Spirit so that we may listen to one another, speak the truth in love, and bear much fruit in the service of your kingdom through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. We are um, doing this week kind of a wrap-up, if you will, of Luke's writings, I will call them, the Gospel and of Luke and then the Acts of the Apostles, that he wrote, he is probably the only Gentile, native Gentile, we'll say, that wrote one of the books in the New Testament. We don't know who wrote Hebrews, so that's kind of out. But the rest of them were written by people who were Jewish by birth. And so, you know, it's a lot of times referred to as the gospel for the Gentiles. And while he wrote it, you know, the purpose of it is in kind of what he was doing, his intent uh, in verses 1 through 4 of chapter 1 of Luke, in as much as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us. It seemed good to me also, having followed all these things closely for some times past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things that have been taught. And that's one of the big things that Luke was wanting to do in both his books that are in the New Testament that he wrote. And for the most part, people have always been satisfied that, yes, he wrote these. There are various books uh, in the Bible, whether old or new. Some people question if they were written by the person whose name is assigned to them. But um, until about the 1900s, nobody questioned whether it was Luke. But he was, yeah, it's kind of interesting as I was thinking back, if we look primarily at Acts, and John's going to talk more about that, it's the messengers that are discussed there. But Luke starts with John the Baptist, another messenger, the herald, that came to tell people that the message, being Christ, because the Word was made flesh, so Christ would have been the message that was among us. And so Luke starts his writings with a messenger, and ends his works with messengers that are spreading the word and the message that Christ brought. You know, one of the things that he did, in, particularly in the gospel, is he used more parables are in Luke than are in the other, really, two gospels, being Matthew and Mark, because John doesn't do any. And only about seven of them are common between Matthew and Luke, and three are in all three. So he made great use of that method of sharing a message. And some of the parables that are ones we talk about almost the most, being like the prodigal son, is one of the ones that uh, he spoke to that's there. One about the Good Samaritan, here again, that's one from... um, Luke only, 
So there are a lot of them that are almost kind of old favorites, so to speak, ones from childhood that we remember the most. They're Luke. <laughs> but he was writing, you know, primarily to Gentiles who had become Christian to let them know that the gospel, the prophecies in the Old Testament that had been attested to by Christ were true, and it was for all. You know, God promised to Abraham that he would be the father of a great nation whose descendants would outnumber the grains of sand or the stars in the sky. And so it had to be more than just people from the 12 tribes because, you know, they just wouldn't multiply to that extent. And so he was bringing that to them and letting them know that the promise of the Holy Spirit was available to all that believed and followed Christ. And he mentions the Holy Spirit quite a bit, both from the time even Simeon is seeing him and Christ come into the temple as a young child, a newborn really, to the end. He talks about the Holy Spirit coming. And so he's wanting everyone that reads this to be assured, because like he is saying there in chapter 1 to Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. So he's laying it out in a systematic flow because in a lot of times while there's similarities between the three synoptic gospels, Luke just follows really beginning to end. And that's one of the problems sometimes we have in the gospels. Different things, similar events happen at different, it seems like, times. But it's each of one of the gospel writers sometimes was making a point and wanting to emphasize so they would pull certain events together. And so if you try to draw a timeline as Matthew might have it or Mark might have it or Luke might have it, different things happen at different points. But that's because each were making, using different things for emphasis. But Luke lays it out in a pattern so that his reader could see the message and how... Christ was fulfillment of the law and the prophets because that's one of the things the Jews really questioned about him. And when Christ came, they just didn't believe him. You know, John the Baptist said, one who comes after me is greater. And even I can't, I'm not worthy to wash his feet. And that was a low servant's job. And he's saying, I'm below a low servant when he says that. And so he's letting his readers know what Christ was doing for them if they would believe. You know, his themes are, as I say, reassurance. That's what he was trying to tell Theophilus, that what he had been taught was real. There was certainty there in it. Um, And then he talks about the rejection by Jews and the acceptance by Gentiles, which was part of the divine plan. You know, everything in the gospel of Luke, it's how the Jews were rejecting. I mean, they rejected Christ. 
The Pharisees and the scribes were always looking for ways to trap him. And, you know, Jesus, in some ways, I, I kind of have to laugh a lot of times. He was a master. You think about just a regular debate. Uh, you kind of almost hate to get in a debate with him because he's going to just outfox you almost. He's just, he know he's two steps ahead of you. And he knows what you're going to say, and he has a retort. John would have hated to have done a closing argument against him because <laughs> you, you'd lost before you started. He would have busted my chops. And, yeah, he did that to the Pharisees and the scribes, and Luke did a good job, just like the other gospel writers did, of pointing that out. And it frustrated him. He also, you know, wanted... To, to help the um, people know that they need not fear Rome. Now, sometimes that's debatable, but if you look at the way he talked about Pontius Pilate wanting to let Jesus go, but he got so much heat and flack, so to speak, on what we call Good Friday from the Jewish leadership, and it was, said a couple of weeks ago when we talk about the Jews, sometimes you have to think the context because it can mean a people, it can mean the leadership, and in this case it was the Jews being the leadership was inflaming the crowd. And Pilate was scared of them, but Luke sat and tried to say, you know, he tried to wash his hands of it, but he couldn't do it. He wasn't brave enough to do it. And also when we get into Acts several times, he's painting the Romans in not a great light, but nothing like what history might say, and particularly before 70 A.D. And so he's letting them know they need not fear the Romans. Now, after Paul was martyred, he might want to have come back and edited that, but... He didn't. He also was letting them know that Christianity is not a new religion. Here again, it's the fulfillment of the promises of the Old Testament. You know, and that Christ would not come immediately. Afterwards, you know, he tells his followers that I will come to you. But he's telling them Luke is that he will come back and we need to be ready. We can't just be, well, he's coming back and do what we want to do. We need to be in prayer. I mean, Christ taught them how to pray. They ask him. He goes through and he gives them what we call the Lord's Prayer. Um, and so he's pointing out, being Luke, those things that are there. He's letting them know as I say, that Christ is coming back, but it's not going to be immediate, and you need to be ready. You need to prepare. You need to be praying. You need to be using what God has given you wisely. And so what you have, he also you know, told people things they didn't want to hear, like the rich young ruler. You know, He wasn't using his money wisely. He was hoarding. So he was told to go sell it and then come follow me. Whereas others, he rewarded uh, the servants that when the landowner went to another country, he gave different amounts to different servants 
to take care of. And the servants who used wisely and in effect invested, he gave them more. And the one who dug a hole and stuck it in the ground, he took it away from him and shamed him. So Luke was telling the followers, here's what you need to be doing. Here's what you need to be thinking. Here's what you need to be prepared for. But be certain, Christ will come again. The Holy Spirit will be here with you if you believe and follow Christ. And so that's pretty much what the whole theme was, the key points that he was trying to address to the readers. And while it was addressed to his excellency, which means he would have been a man of importance, uh, Theophilus, it was to the believers. And it would not have been just obviously a letter that went to one person and then he put it in his letter desk and set it aside. It was spread. It was shared with believers throughout the, um, the Western world, so to speak, not just in the area of Jerusalem. And then I think John's going to talk a little bit about as the message spread. Well, Steve's um, summary of Luke, I think, sets up or tees up the ball perfectly for a summary of Acts. Um, we end the gospel according to Luke with Christ's last admonition to his apostles in Luke's version of the Great Commission. He tells them in Luke chapter 24, uh, go and preach to all nations beginning in Jerusalem, but wait in Jerusalem for the power that will come to meet you. And then he opens up the, um, the, uh, the, the book of Acts the same way that uh, Jesus had told them that they would receive the Holy Spirit and that they would preach first in Jerusalem and then in Judea and Samaria and then to the end of the earth. And it seems to me that that is the, the theme of everything that Luke wrote. If we think back to um, in his gospel, the Christmas story, and, and, and what follows in the, in the birth of Jesus, it is inherently Jewish in the way that, um, that Mary and Joseph go to Bethlehem because they are of the lineage of King David. There, it is inherently Jewish in the way they bring him to the temple and uh, old uh, Simeon, maybe not old, but certainly Simeon, who's been waiting for the fulfillment of God's word, says, now thy servant, me, can depart in peace. I can die in peace. And old Anna, who had been there in the temple as like a Jewish version of a nun for almost all of her life since she'd become a widow, um, there's something inherently Jewish in all of that. And yet, it's also inherently universal. When the, when the multitude of the heavenly host appeared on Christmas night to the, um, the poor, unwashed, and uh, very... Um, unobservant Jews out in the fields keeping watch over their sheep, what do they say? For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, and this shall be unto all people. 
made clear that this was for the entire earth. And the, um, and the story of the book of Acts is the story of the way the church spread. Um, it would not pass the notice of even the most casual reader that the story of the spreading of the church sort of resembled the way ripples on water flow from the point of impact of a stone thrown into the water, first in Jerusalem and then out into the rest of the Jewish world and then out into the Gentile world. But careful readers will have noticed that um, that the way uh, Luke tells the story drives that point home. And in various places in the book of Acts, he actually sums up the growth of the church in a particular region. For example, in the uh, middle of chapter 9, we get about two-thirds of the way in verse 31. 9 through 31 in Acts says, Then the churches throughout all Judea, Galilee, and Samaria had peace and were edified. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, they were multiplied. And six times in the book of Acts, we get that point. First, that the church has grown in Jerusalem. And then what I just read, the church has grown throughout all of Judea, Samaria, and Galilee. And then we will have it later. It grows even larger through Antioch, which is, which is a, a Greek city in the north part of the Roman province of Syria. And then it grows in Asia Minor. And then it grows in Greece. And then finally, at the end of the, of the whole book, we have Paul preaching in Rome. So it's now gone from Jerusalem at the beginning of the book, this, this scattered little band of followers whose morale had to have been very low, to Paul preaching in the very heart of the Roman Empire, the first city, the imperial city. There is Paul preaching in Rome as the book ends. There are two remarkable stories in the book of Acts, and they, in a way, I think, parallel the two remarkable characters, and I'll speak to them in a minute. First is the remarkable story in chapter 2 of the coming of the Holy Spirit on the Feast of the Pentecost. Um, an amazing story. This band has been waiting, as Jesus told them to, but wondering, what in the world are we going to do? And on the Feast of the Pentecost, those who heard the gospel preached in their own languages and it multiplied, it, it kick-started this growth of the church. A fantastic, amazing story that showed the complete transformation of these um, original 12, uh, the original 11 and their added 12th from a disorganized, uh, dispirited band into these men who preached with the fire of the Holy Spirit. A complete transformation. And then the second remarkable story we have is in chapter 9 where Paul, Saul, the one who's been persecuting the church, um, has his Damascus conversion. And we see through that several-day event where he's blinded, he hears Christ speaking to him directly, and then eventually he gets his sight back and he comes back to Jerusalem and he has been completely transformed, just like that band of, of followers in Jerusalem in the Pentecost story. Paul has been completely transformed. He is now no longer Saul. He is Paul. Like all through the Old Testament when um, 
men of God had this amazing transformative encounter with Yahweh. Their names changed from Abram to Abraham, from, uh, from Jacob to Israel. <laughs> almost, almost lost that one. Um, but we see that over and over. Peter, his first name, his, his, his name was Simon. And Jesus said, I will make you the rock on which I will build my church. Peter comes from the Greek word for rock. So his name goes from the very, very, very Jewish Simon to Cephas, which is the Jewish version of rock. But he takes from a holy Jewish name to one that implies the uh, fundamental transformation of what Peter was and what he has now become. So we see this growth of the church. We see it go through stages, through phases of the wider world. And um, as Steve said, how it showed in, um, in Luke's gospel, it shows also in Luke's account of the spreading of the church. It goes first to the Jews. And then it goes afterwards to the Gentiles. And even when Paul is in the Gentile world, when he's in Asia Minor preaching in these, in these Hellenized churches, when he's in um, Greece itself, when he's in Rome, who does he go to first? He goes first to the Jews because the gospel was first and foremost the fulfillment of the Jewish scriptures, of the Jewish um, law and the prophets, of everything that was laid out in the, what we call the Old Testament. And after that, only after that, did he go to the Gentiles. And some of the Jews were scoffers. Some of them rejected him, but some of them believed. And many of the Gentiles were also scoffers and rejectors, but many of them believed. Isn't that the pattern for all of human history? Certainly for all of the history of Christ's church. Some scoff, some believe. As Paul wrote in one of his epistles, um, for those who are not dying, what we preach is folly. It's insanity. But for those who are dying in their sin, it is salvation. We see in the, um, in the book of Acts, as we see in the gospel of, of Luke, we see a very um, flattering portrait of individual Romans. In the book of Acts, we have two exemplary centurions, uh, Cornelius, the centurion who greets Simon Peter and is converted with his entire house, and Julius, the jailer of Paul, who carries him all the way to Rome and who is the very model of a dutiful, faithful soldier who is just and, and, and even-handed in, uh, in carrying out his duties. We see the same picture of Roman officials, some of whom, like Felix, were somewhat less than exemplary uh, moral standards, but who carried out their duty in applying Roman law with great and even-handed precision. Same with Festus, even more with Festus, who, um, who would have released Paul, except that Paul demanded to go to Caesar. And Paul demanded to go to Caesar because Jesus had promised him that he would preach in Rome. So the transformation of these two great men, Peter and Paul, about whom the book of Acts really, um, the, the story of the early church is told through their works, through first the works of Peter, and then through the works of Paul. And, um, and we see through those two 
people, the transformation of those two great men, also the transformation of Jews and of Gentiles and converted them to this new way. And we can imagine the Roman official who's reading these two books together and is, is seeing how Luke, a Gentile, is, is explaining how this, this obscure little sect is both part of the, um, of the proper licta, that is, licit uh, under Roman law, this proper religion, but also is a message, a transformative religion for the entire world addressed to Theophilus, in Greek meaning one who loves God. Now, I want to finish with a, a curious thought. It's curious in a way, I think, that Acts, the book of Acts ends with Paul in prison in Rome. Does it seem strange to anybody else that we don't know the rest of the story? We, we have no idea. As, as Steve spoke last week, it may be that, uh, that Paul was released at the end of this two years that he was, um, that he was paying his own way, renting his house under house arrest in Rome. It may well be that he was released according to some tradition and that he made a missionary journey to Spain as he had written to the, to the church in Rome that he wished to do. It may well be that he went to Spain and eventually came back to Rome. It may well be that he never went to Spain, but that he stayed in Rome and until um, Roman officialdom finally got around to dealing with him. According to tradition, he was put to death in Rome. He was martyred uh, probably by beheading because he was uh, a Roman citizen and therefore exempt from crucifixion. According to some tradition, he and Peter were put to death in Rome around the same time, around the great persecution by Nero um, that preceded the uh, destruction of the temple back in Jerusalem and the scattering of all of the nation of Israel to the four winds. We don't know. That's only tradition. There is the great, um, the, the great uh, novel, Covatis, written by a, um, a Polish fellow by the name of Sienkiewicz. Um, it was made into a pretty good movie. Um, the, the story Covatis, which is Latin for Where Are You Going? And I'll tie that up in a moment. Uh, the, the story is of Peter and Paul, and it fills in the blanks. It speculates about what happened to Peter and Paul in Rome. And at a point where um, Peter has the opportunity to escape and to get away and to uh, be free, he's walking out of the city behind chaos. Uh, Rome is in flames because Nero has set fire to Rome. Um, he's walking out and he passes Christ the incarnate Christ on the road and he's walking away from Rome and the incarnate Christ is walking into Rome and they pass on the road and he says, where are you going, Lord? Or in Latin, Covitus Domine. Where are you going, Lord? And Christ replies back to Peter, I'm going to Rome to be crucified with my people. And at that moment, Peter turns around and goes back to the city of Rome. Now, that's all speculation. We don't know. It's a beautiful story, and it made a pretty, again, I say it made a pretty good movie. It's worth a rental on Netflix if you, you can find it. I'm sorry? You think something could happen to Luke? 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 You think
there's well, speculation on that. There, there is speculation on that. But here's the, here's the point I want to leave with. I want to close with and kind of wrap up this unless anybody has any discussion. It almost doesn't matter. Well, it really doesn't matter. If it mattered, it would be at the end of the book of Acts. Why doesn't it matter? Why does it matter how Paul met his end? It doesn't matter because more than once Paul was reassured in his ministry that he would preach in Rome. And like the ultimate ripple coming from the stone dropped into the water, the word of God, the gospel of Jesus Christ is going to make it to Rome and it's going to go to Rome because Christ promised Paul that it would go to Rome. And so we see Paul with absolute utter fearlessness knowing that he's going to be in Rome and knowing that he will get before Caesar. He will bring his case before Caesar. He will preach the gospel in the heart of the Roman Empire. So he doesn't fear a shipwreck. He doesn't fear execution back in Jerusalem. He could have been let go, but no, he says, I put my case before Caesar. He knows he's going to preach in Rome. And so in a way, it doesn't matter what happened after that because we know that at the end of the book, the promise has been fulfilled. He's been promised that he would be there, and he's there. And he's preaching, and he's converting. As the, as the end of the book of Acts makes clear, Paul is making converts in Rome. So I can imagine however Paul met his end, whether he met his end um, uh, by execution or whether he died in his bed, if it was by execution, the last moment, according to uh, Sienkiewicz in his novel, Paul insisted that his, that his eyes be bound so that the last thing that he saw would be a view of Rome and that the first thing that he would see would be the view of heaven. If, if, if that's what happened, if uh, Paul's last word as he saw the executioner drawing his sword and the wrappings around his eyes being uh, the blindfold being put in place, if the last thing that he saw was his, the ceiling of his room as he closed his eyes on his deathbed, he might very well have repeated the same words of Christ on the cross, that it is finished, mission accomplished, debt paid, gospel spread, heart of Rome, the whole world. It is finished. Praise God. And I suppose at this point we can say that this is finished also. <laughs> Any comments, questions? Well, hope everybody has a really blessed and meaningful Lent. I intend to, I, I intend to read the book of Ecclesiastes and, and focus again on the human condition, which I think is the perfect Lenten discipline, the, the absolute futility of the human condition and how much we need the sacrifice and the atonement that was bought on the hill and the resurrection that promises us something beyond this human condition that is all vanity. So that's what I intend to do for Lent, and I wish you all a blessed Lent and an even more blessed Easter. We'll be back here the first Sunday after Easter, and we will talk about post-resurrection stories that happened uh, that are related in the Gospel of John because there, there are more than we have time to tell 
but I think that we can squeeze some really, really good theology out of the post-resurrection stories in John. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you all. Thanks be to God. Amen.